Good morning again. Well, I'd like to say it's, uh, it's really good to be back with you again. Uh, my wife and I dealt with a, a rough virus that you might have heard of. Um, so uh, we're not 100% back to normal, but we're back and we're ready to look at God's Word together. And since you're here in, in a church building or you're watching a church service online, that suggests to me that you must believe or at least suspect or, or you're wondering if God is doing something in the world. Since you're here in a church or you're, you're watching online, you must at least somewhere in your mind think, I, I think God is doing things in the world. I think there is a God and I think He does some things in the world around us. You must have seen somewhere some evidence or something that makes you think God is acting here. You've seen evidence of His hand. You've seen evidence that God is doing things in the world. And when we see God act, the question we should ask ourselves is how do we respond to that? If we see something and we think, I think God is doing this, how do we respond to that? And that's what we're talking about today is responding to God's good hand. Now, if you remember where we are, we are studying through a particular book in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is talking about God particularly revealing himself to one people group, the Israelites. And this people group, he had a relationship with them, but they weren't really following what God told them to do. They weren't living as God intended that relationship to work. And since they weren't doing that, they ended up being forced out of the land God had given them. They spent 70 years in exile from their promised land. But now, where we are in the Old Testament, we're talking about God's people coming back to the promised land. They weren't in the place where they could worship God, where they were used to worshiping God, but now they're coming back. That's what the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are about. They didn't all come back at once. There was kind of waves of people coming. And we're now talking about the second group of people coming back to the promised land sometime around 458 B.C. The last time I spoke on Ezra two weeks ago, we talked about how the king at the time was the Persian king Artaxerxes. And this king ruled over where God's people were in exile and over the land that God had promised to them. And he gave this man, Ezra, authority to go back to the promised land. He could teach. He could establish God's law. He could appoint judges and leaders who would teach people to follow it. And he could repair and adorn the temple where God was worshipped. In that chapter, Ezra 7, we read this about Ezra. It said, he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king, the king, the Persian king, granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Ezra was skilled in the Old Testament law, and he asked the king, could we go back and do these things? And because God acted, that happened. Ezra trusted God's good word, and he had seen God's good hand, God's actions. But now it's the time for Ezra and the people to respond to what God is doing. And how Ezra and the Israelites responded is how we should respond to. And that's what we're going to look at today. It's a bit of a longer spread out chapter, so we're going to talk about it as we go through it. So before we dive in, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the privilege of being among your people to worship you. Thank you for the joy of being with other brothers and sisters in Christ, the joy in singing your praises, 
and the joy of hearing from your word. I pray, God, as we look at your word today, you would show us how we can respond when you act, how we can respond to your good hand. Teach us, Lord, to call others to follow you. Teach us to trust you. Teach us to look for more of what you're doing. And teach us, Lord, to worship you always. May we see you clearly. May by seeing you, we understand your son, Jesus Christ, and he may increase and receive more honor and glory through what is said this morning. May he, may you be our focus today. It's in his name, the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. So that's what we're going to talk about is a couple of responses of Ezra and God's people to what God is doing. And the first response that we see Ezra and the Israelites make to God's good hand is that they call others to follow God. They see what God is doing and they call others to follow God. We see this in the first 20 verses. I'm not going to read all of them, but I'll read a couple of them. Verse 1 says, these are the heads of their father's houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me, up with Ezra, from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes, the king. And so then there's a list of all the people who came with Ezra back to the promised land. I'm not going to read that, but I'm going to jump ahead to when he's gathered the people together in verse 15. So in verse 15, Ezra says, I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priest, I found there none of the sons of Levi. So he says, then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerob, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, Meshulam. They were leading men. And I sent for Joririb and Elnathan, who were men of insight. I sent them to Iddo, the leading man at the place of Casaphia, telling them what to say to Iddo and his brothers and the temple servants at the place Casaphia. Namely, they're to tell him to send us ministers for the house of our God. Verse 18, and by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah, with his sons and kinsmen. And it tells us how many, 18. Also, Hashabiah, with him, Jeshiah, the sons of Moriah, his kinsmen, their sons, besides 220 of the temple servants, who David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. And these were all mentioned, recorded, or registered by name. So in these first couple verses, we see a list of the people who return with Ezra. And in that list, we didn't read it here, but there's a particular emphasis on the priesthood, on the priestly families returning. They needed priests in order to worship God the way God said he was to be worshiped. There's also listed there a descendant of David, a kind of interesting note. Maybe Ezra's hoping for a future king to rule God's people, a future Messiah. The rest of the people listed are 12 families of people who go with Ezra and the other Israelites back. Maybe a kind of reference to the 12 original tribes of Israel. So these people decide to go back with Ezra. Maybe it's possible some of their relatives have already gone back to the promised land in the first return of people. And maybe they were excited for a chance to be reunited. What we see happen here is Ezra must have received what we read in chapter 7 uh, two weeks ago. There he had asked the king for some things, and the king had given him a letter and given permission for more of God's people to go back to the promised land. And so Ezra must have sent out this call. Hey, 
we can go back to the promised land. Who is coming with me? And this list in verses 1 through 14 are the people who answered that call, who responded and were willing to go back to the promised land. And God valued all of these families, their willingness to leave what was comfortable, the place they had been for 70 years, to leave that and go where he called. And so God honored them by recording their names in this passage. Well, when this group gets together, as we looked at in verse 15, they assembled at a plain near the river or canal of Ahava. Ezra looked at, he reviewed this group after three days to see who all came and was ready to go. And he had, ha- he had some priests with him, but he didn't have any Levites, sons of Levi, some of the lower clergy, the people who helped out in the temple, who helped out with the worship, the aides to the priest. He didn't have any of them. They needed these people so that they could worship God rightly, but they weren't there. And this is particularly a problem because the king himself said that these people could go back to the promised land. Back in chapter 7 and verse 13, the king said, I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priest or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. The king specifically said that Levites could go, but they're not there. The king also told Ezra that he could appoint people who could teach God's law. And that was a particular responsibility of the Levites. They were supposed to teach others how to live for God. But again, they're not there. And their failure to take advantage of this opportunity is a failure of them to fulfill their role. This family was meant to teach others God's law, to lead in the worship and sacrifices, but they're not there. They're not They didn't answer Ezra's call to come back. They preferred to stay in exile. They preferred to stay with what they were comfortable with rather than follow where God was leading. And that must have been really disappointing for Ezra and the other leaders. The king himself of this whole empire had said that they could go back to the promised land, but the people he needs aren't there. Ezra must have thought about it a little, and I wonder what was going through his mind. He must have been very frustrated, and he could have said, well, you know what? Forget them. They don't want to live for God? Then I'll go, and I'll live for God, because I know what's right. And he could have just left right then. But that's not what he did. Instead, he took some time. He delayed his trip in order to convince others to come with him and follow God. The passage we read talks about a list of men that he sends, and he sends these men to where he knows the Levites and the temple servants live. Maybe it's the place they've been during the exile, a place of worship perhaps. He sends leaders, he sends some non-Levite teachers, men of insight, understanding, and discernment. He wisely sends those who he knows will be able to persuade these Levites, these other people, to come with him. And the message he gives them is there to challenge the Levites, to send us ministers, attendants, servants for the house of our God. We need ministers in the temple. Ezra cared enough about his people, his fellow Jews, his fellow Israelites, that he sent men to challenge them, to confront them in their complacency, to put the goal in front of them, please follow God with me. And verse 18 tells us that by God's good and gracious hand, God sent them a good man to serve and to lead. His his name was Sherebiah. 
It even calls him a man of discretion, a man of understanding. And look at even God's grace in that. This man, Sherebiah, he was one of those who did not answer Ezra's first call. Ezra put out a call, hey, we can go. This guy didn't answer it. Ezra had to send other people, but they convinced him. And Ezra, instead of being, and this latecomer, uh, Sherebiah came, no, he calls him a man of discretion and understanding. He, and this man, he calls him that because he realized, you know, I must have been wrong to not come. And he took some time to persuade not only his family, but a couple other families to join their quest back to the promised land. This reminds us that, that we have a role to seek out, to raise up God-honoring leaders in our churches, in our families, but it's God alone who actually does that work and gets the praise. So we should pray for God that He would bring leaders to our church, that He would raise up, bring in the people that we need to do what God has called us to do. For Ezra and his group, there were about 260 men, 220 plus those other families, are convinced to go. So 260 more people are convinced to go. They're all officially registered, and they're ready for this trip. In just a matter of days, they decide, yes, we will leave the homes we knew. We will go with you back to the promised land. And God used Ezra and these men to persuade others. They used this small group. God used them for his glory. And we're challenged to do the same thing that Ezra and these men were to do. When God acts, when we see God acting in his good hand, our call is to persuade others to follow him. When we see God doing something, we should step back and say, God has done something. We should tell others about this. We should follow God together. One way this is, is we call those who do not know God to have faith in Jesus Christ. That's our particular role. If we are followers of God, if we are Christians, believers in Jesus Christ, we are to call others, say, we have seen God act. You should know God as well. In the New Testament, we read this. The Apostle Paul says about Christians, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God makes his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If we know Jesus, then we represent God to people who do not know him. And we have a message. We implore, we beg, we persuade, we say, you need to be reconciled and restored to God. We represent Christ to those who do not know him, and we call them to respond. You've heard it a lot, but what we're doing here this year is we're trying to think about one person that we can represent God to this year and intentionally pray for one person that we will stand as an ambassador for God to that person and implore them to be reconciled, restored to God. So that's one way we call others to follow God. But perhaps a bit closer to the context here is we can call believers to follow God more closely. After all, in this case, the Levites certainly would have claimed to have a relationship with God. They just needed to be challenged to follow Him in a closer way. Here's the truth. None of us are perfect. Christians, followers of Christ, are human. And things like fear, comfort, complacency can hold us back from what God is telling us to do. And when we see that, our call is to patiently, graciously persuade and challenge them to obey and follow God. Maybe we see a believer in Christ who's not active in sharing the gospel. Or maybe we see they're not standing up to truth when 
friends are trying to lead them astray. In Ezra's case, he sees some people who are unwilling to follow where God has told his people to go. He doesn't yell, he doesn't get upset, but he sends men of understanding and wisdom who he knows will be listened to. And so if we see another believer, particularly within our our church family, someone who's not following God, we persuade with gentleness and the humility that we might be the one who's in the wrong. And when we're looking at this, I don't think it's as much about looking for error in someone else. I, I think in some ways, many believers steer too far in that direction and are constantly looking for errors and faults in other believers. I, I think that's a bit too far. But I think this is looking and seeing if somebody's failing to actively live for the Lord. Maybe they're, they aren't showing God's love to someone the way they should. Maybe they're not sharing the gospel. Maybe they're not caring about others the way they should be. Or maybe they're not serving in God's church. That is when we challenge and call them to follow God. I think, though, there's also a a special calling to follow God that we should talk about before we move on. I think we have a role also to call believers to go to those who need Christ in the places where they need Christ. At the end of our service today, we're going to have a a very short special moment. We're going to have a a missionary commissioning prayer. We're going to commission one of our own members to go and, and serve Christ on the other side of the world. And I pray that this is not the only time we do this in the church. It's been a long time, but I pray this is not the only time. My prayer is this becomes a regular thing, that we're regularly taking time to pray for those who are going to where Christ needs to be heard. I was reading an article about this from Pastor John Piper this week, and he reminded us that this gospel, this good news we have, is not written in the clouds. It is entrusted to Christians who become witnesses, and missionaries. Today, we'll pray for one of our own who's going to missions, but maybe God is calling one of you as well, or one of you watching. God's calling you to go and to share about Him somewhere that's not here. And if you want to talk about that, I'd be happy to have a conversation with you about what that could look like. If 2020 and 2021 has taught us anything, it's that there's nowhere in the world you can go that's safe from everything. Being here doesn't spare you any more from a pandemic than being anywhere else in the world. So don't, don't make your life about living where it's safe and where it's comfortable. Make your life about where you can do the most good for God's kingdom and bring Him the most glory. Our role is to call others to follow God. And when others join us in following God, well then together we can trust God We can respond to what God is doing by trusting Him more. Your next blank is trust God. Let's look at verses 21 through 23. The group is together, and in verse 21, Ezra says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God, to seek from Him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted, we implored our God for this, and he listened 
to our entreaty. So Ezra and the Israelites, they humble themselves to seek God, to ask him for a safe trip, to ask him that he would lead them in the right way. They'd avoid traps and ambushes. And while we, of course, today can pray for God for a safe trip wherever we're going, this was especially important in this day because travel was often very dangerous. And this was a large, vulnerable group. It may have been about 3,000 to 5,000 people. And they're, we'll read, they're carrying a lot of gold and precious materials. It must have been a very tempting target for a thief or bandit who knew what they had. And so Ezra asked the people, let's fast, let's pray. And when they're fasting here, it's particularly an expression of trust and dependence upon God. And it's a call that God gives to His people as a way to trust Him multiple times in the Scriptures. In 2 Chronicles 20, some men came and told the king Jehoshaphat that a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. Behold, they're at Hazaron Tamar in En Gedi. And so Jehoshaphat was afraid. He had a human response, but he set his face to seek the Lord. He proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. In Scripture, it often talks about fasting as a way to express dependence on God. Now, some people will talk about fasting from one thing in life or another. When the Bible talks about it, it's always talking about a fast from food, of not eating. And when it's talking about that, it's doing that in a way to say, God, I'm not going to eat, but I'm going to trust in you. This isn't a way of manipulating God. It's not that Ezra the people said, so if we're not eating, then God is guaranteed to give us a safe journey. It's not that. They're saying we will depend on God more than we'll depend on food. In order for this to happen, they needed the king's support to allow them to go, but Ezra and the people knew that God was the one who directed kings. God was the one who had to be in control of this journey. As one scholar, Mervyn Brenneman, says, Ezra challenges us with his emphasis on humility and worship. Before he launched any project related to God's work, he sought God's guidance and he worshiped. And that's what Ezra is doing. We're going to go. We know that God's acted. We know that we're supposed to go here, but we are still going to spend some time seeking God, expressing our dependence on him. Their prayer here is similar to a prayer of David in Psalm 5. David says, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. There's enemies around me, so make your way straight before me. It's the same prayer that God's people have now. But the trust in God, the response they have to God's good, good hand of trust is really seen in that verse 22. Ezra and those around him chose to rely on God rather than man. And they refused to be indebted to the Persian king by asking for an armed escort. And the reason Ezra realizes this is he remembers the trust that the king has in him. The king has given him all that he asked and what he told the king about God. In verse 22, he said, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. Ezra had seen what God was doing. When we were back in chapter 7, Ezra responded to what the king was doing with these words. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king, to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. 
And Ezra's response then was, I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me. The king had given his letter. Ezra was confident that God was behind this, that God is doing this. And so it was easy for him to trust God to protect them, protect his people. And what's so special about this moment is remember the Israelites were in exile. They had been removed from the promised land because they weren't trusting God. They weren't following him. But here, it seems like they're finally learning to trust God and rely on him. And so they do fast before they go. They pray, God, protect us on this journey. It seems that what God had said way back when he gave them the law may finally be coming true. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses had written, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples. You'll go in exile. You'll be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. Do you see the same words in our verse? The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. They've learned that lesson, and now they are seeking God and finding him. Ezra has seen God's good hand. The Israelites have seen it, and now they're responding with greater trust in God. Pastor Charles Spurgeon said about Ezra that he could not bring his mind to lean on the arm of flesh in a matter so evidently of the Lord. And therefore, the caravan set out with no visible protection, guarded by him who is the sword and shield of his people. They set out trusting in God. Ezra's desire is that the king and all Persians will see that this one true God does take care of his people and he can be trusted. His power is seen in the world. He does good. According to his purpose, he does good to those who seek and know him. He is favorably disposed to them. He protects them while his fierce anger and wrath is on those who forsake and reject him. This was a lesson that God's people knew earlier, but it seems they're finally grasping. Back in the book of Second Chronicles, the Spirit of God comes upon a prophet named Azariah, and he goes to King Asa and says to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. And that great truth they've learned and they're sharing it with others and they're acting, trusting it. Since it's true that if they seek God, God will be found, Ezra and the Israelites act in faith. They give God an opportunity to show his power by their humility of their weakness and their lack of military escort. They're demonstrating something that the Apostle Paul said about God. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. God's power is seen in our weakness, and Ezra and the Israelites are giving God an opportunity to show that. Now, it may be too far to take from this lesson, Will, so we should never rely on anything else and just trust God wherever we're going. We shouldn't prepare. We shouldn't have any help from anyone. We should just go in trust of God. And that's probably taking it a bit too far. In fact, even... We'll get to it in a little bit in Nehemiah chapter 2. Remember, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book in the Old Testament. In Nehemiah, Nehemiah makes this journey 
but he has an armed escort when he goes. And he's not condemned for that. Nobody rejects. God doesn't say that was the wrong thing to do. So it's a wisdom matter about the situation. But the passage we're reading is an important challenge to us. Where do we place our faith? Do we place our faith in our abilities and our wisdom? Do we place our faith in somebody else to take care of us? Or do we place our faith in God? That's what the Israelites do. They fast, they petition, implore, entreat, seek God for his aid. They earnestly pray for God's help, trusting him. And our text tells us that God listened, God answered their prayer. They expected God to answer their prayer because God had said they could go back. So he said, if God says we can go back, he will protect us on the way. And that's what they prayed for. They knew God would listen to them because God oversees what happens in history. I really liked how Mervyn Brenneman put it. He said that phrase, he answered our prayer, has been the testimony of God's people through the centuries. Those who know God know it is true that he answers our prayers. So let's think about us. What, do we respond to God this way? When we see he's acting, do we express trust in him? Do we trust God to do what he said according to his purposes? Now, if we're doing that, it doesn't mean that we act foolishly. That doesn't mean we act recklessly. It doesn't mean we ignore the wisdom of others. But it does mean we start with trust in God, and then we move from there. We start with, I'm going to trust and seek the Lord, and then we think through how we do it. If you'll indulge me with one more Spurgeon quote, I think this is really good. He's talking about uh, this passage, and he has somebody challenging him about what he just said. But, says one, are not means to be used? Are we not to use the things God has given us? Are we not to think through how we do things? And Spurgeon says, well, assuredly they are, but our fault seldom lies in their neglect in not using the extra things other than God. Far more frequently, our fault springs out of foolishly believing in them instead of believing in God. Few run too far in neglecting the creature's arm, but very many sin greatly in making too much of it. So his conclusion is, listen, dear reader, or learn, dear reader, to glorify the Lord by leaving means untried, if by using them you would dishonor the name of the Lord. He's saying learn to trust God first in order to honor him and ask him what would bring you the most glory in this situation. One way that we can do that to bring God glory is as we go, we look for more of what he's doing. That's the third response we see in this passage. Ezra and the Israelites, they look for more of God's work around them. They see more of what God's good hand toward them because they're acting in trust of God. So let's look at verses 24 through 34. I'm not going to read all of them, but I'm going to emphasize a couple. So in verse 24, it says, Ezra says, Then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, ten of their kinsmen with them. I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. The next two verses tell us exactly how much stuff it was. It's a huge amount of gold and silver and things they have with them. And in verse 28, Ezra says to them, You are holy to the Lord. The vessels are holy. The silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. So guard them. 
Keep them until you weigh them before the chief priest and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. The priests are entrusted to guard these things. And then let's go to verse 31. It says, Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was on us. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem. There we remained three days. Verse 33, on the fourth day within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth the priest. And a few other men are listed. And then in verse 34, he says, the whole was counted and weighed and the weight of everything was recorded. So in these verses, we see Ezra the Israelites looking for more of what God is doing, looking for more evidence of his good hand. And there's two parts of this. There's their preparation and then their journey to the promised land. So first they prepare to go. And Ezra entrusts the priest and the Levites with the offerings that have been given. Some of the Jews who were still in exile had said, here, take this to use in the temple. And the Persian king and his officials had given a very generous gift. And so Ezra says, you priest, you Levites are to keep track of this. It's a large amount and so they write it out. They document exactly how many things are there so they can be held accountable to make sure it gets there. And even here, this is almost an aside, we see another example of God's grace because two of the men that he puts in charge of this are Sherebiah and Hashabiah. They were some of those guys who didn't come when Ezra first called. They were some that had to be persuaded to go on the journey. But now Ezra says, you're here now. I'm going to trust you with this responsibility. God has given them a second chance. He's looking for God. Ezra is expecting, again, God is working. God said we could go, so I believe God will protect us, and I believe that he will send all these gold and silver and other things we have. He will get all of it on this long journey there to the promised land. And Ezra tells the priest, you are to transport these items because you're priests, you're Levites. God has set you apart as holy and distinct. The gifts, the vessels, articles have been consecrated. They're for holy service. Ezra knows what the Old Testament law says about the priest. They shall be holy to their God. They shall not profane the name of their God. They offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God. Therefore, they shall be holy, set apart, distinct, and different. Ezra's been told to go by the Persian king. He works for the Persian king, but he knows the ultimate authority is God. God is the one that he fears, the one that he trusts and respects. And so he says to the priest, these offerings belong to God. We need to be accountable for what God has given us. Pastor James Hamilton said, Ezra appeals to God's holiness to motivate these men to be faithful. He doesn't say, you'll be in trouble with me if some of this is missing when you get there. He doesn't say the Persians will be upset if some of this disappears on the journey. No, he says these offerings belong to God and you are responsible for them. It's reminding us how we take care of what God has given us shows us what we think of God. How we steward the resources God gives to us shows how we respect our Lord. Ezra kept very faithful records. He recorded everything they had so everyone could see this is what we had and God will be faithful to preserve this until we get to the promised land. He's looking for God's good hand to preserve this gift from thieves uh, without attacking them and maybe even from thieves within. 
And then he sees God's good hand on their journey to the promised land. Verse 31 tells us they departed from the river Ahava on the 12th day of the first month to go to Jerusalem, and the hand of our God was on us. He delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes on the way. They see that God is with them on this journey. God delivered and rescued them. It almost strikes me how very simple and kind of matter of fact that is there. I have questions. I want to know, how did the journey go? What was it like? Were you attacked? Was the trip hard? Were there some struggles on the way? But for Ezra, that's, that's unimportant. God delivered us from attacks and ambushes on the way. No ambush, no bandit stood a chance. In every dangerous situation, God can protect his people for his purposes. And this large group, 3,000 to 5,000 people, they make this 900-mile journey over four months and arrive in Jerusalem, resting a few days, understandably, when they get there. We had seen this described in the chapter before. It said on the first day of the first month, he began, he got the people together to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, four months later, he came to Jerusalem because he was awesome, because the people were really strong. No, for the good hand of his God was on him. And then the reason why I had us read verses 33, 34 about them counting all these things is because all the items are there. They're safely, successfully delivered. Everything was accounted for. Ezra looked for God to act, and he did. So it leaves us with two challenges as God's people. One, we should pray that we as a church will steward God's resources faithfully, that we will be accountable, responsible for what God has given us. But also, I think it's an opportunity for us to ask ourselves, when we see God acting, when we see his good hand, do we look for him to do more? Or do we say, well, that's really awesome, God did this, and then we move on with our life, and we don't look for the next thing that God is doing. When I was sharing about chapter 7, I talked about how we should discipline ourselves to look for God's good hand, to look for how God is working in our lives. To think about our day or perhaps our week and set aside some time to think about how did I see God acting for me, doing something for me today? How did I see God doing something for me this week? To look for more of God's work. This helps me. Maybe it helps you. Maybe setting aside some time to do a list, to list out what God is doing. Uh, I can't take credit for this idea. I give credit to my wife. When we were in the middle of the pandemic time, my wife said, hey, why don't we start every day and night when we go to bed, we make a list of five things that we're thankful for that we've seen God do today. And so we started doing that. And I have to confess, because I'm not perfect, that uh, we fell off from doing that for a couple months. And then very recently, not me, my wife said, you know, John, we should really start doing this again. And so we have, and we're not perfect. Sometimes we miss some days, but I think it's a wonderful discipline to get into, to deliberately set aside time. Where have I seen God work? So that the next day I'm more inclined to think, where will I see God work today? That's what's working for us. What about you? How are you looking for more of God's good hand in your life? The very last response we're going to talk about is when they finally get to the promised land, the people respond by worshiping God, by worshiping God. We especially see this in verse 35. Look at verse 35 and 36. It says, at that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, they offered 
burnt offerings to the God of Israel. It tells us what they gave, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, as a sin offering, 12 male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. And they also delivered the king's commissions to his officials, his satraps, governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people and the house of God. When they get back, they've seen everything God has done for them to get them back. He's even preserved all the offering they had. They respond by offering sacrifices to worship God for his good hand toward him. Again, I really like the things scholar Mervyn Brenneman wrote about this chapter. He says, for those who love God, the first response before, daring, or after any project such as this must be worship. Our first response before, we praise God. God, we praise you for who you are, what you're going to do. Daring, God, we praise you that what, for what you're doing, that this is going on. And after, God, we praise you for what you have done to bring us this far. That's what the Israelites do. They even have 12 animals, again, to represent the 12 original tribes of Israel. And think about this moment for those people who came. They've been in exile for over 70 years. At this point, we're now well beyond that. They've probably been there for over 100 years. And so they come to the temple. This is the first time that they've ever experienced what worship of God is supposed to look like in their entire life. I know last year was hard for us in a season where we weren't able to gather together, and maybe some of you are still unable to join us, but it's only been about a year. And, and I'm not saying that that makes it easy, or I'm not belittling that at all. It definitely was a struggle, but these people had never seen it in their entire lifetimes, what it was like to worship God together with His people. That must have been an amazing moment for them to be there, to worship the Lord. It must have been very special. It must have been like the celebration that we read about a few weeks ago when they finally built the temple. In chapter 6, it sounds almost like the same thing. The people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the rest of the returned exiles, they celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. And they offered the same thing, animals, 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. Part of the reason I like studying through books in the Bible is because we see patterns. And what you'll see in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah is that when God works or acts, He does something through His people, they respond with a great celebration of worship. We've seen it before, we've seen it now, and spoiler alert, we're going to see it again as we go through these books. In Ezra and Nehemiah, there are repeated celebrations of worship when God acts. The governing authorities are also supporting the work of God as the king had directed them to. It's another reason for the people to worship God, praise Him for His faithful and good hand. You know, when I do sermons, you might notice that there are certain phrases or things that that I repeat or, or emphasize, and I try to do that purposely because I think a reason, a major way that we should always be responding to God's Word is by worshiping Him. You notice at the very end of the sermon that what I say is we're going to have a song of response because we all should be responding to God's Word, whether it's taking the lesson that we've learned and specifically applying it to our life, whether it's coming to know God for the first time, or whether it's just praising Him for what we've heard about Him. And that praising Him, that worship, I think that's a response everyone should have whenever we read or hear from God's Word.
That's how the Ezra and the Israelites are responding here, and that's how we should respond as well. Brothers and sisters, I, I know that the past few years have been hard for us as a church, and I'm sure has been hard for many of us individually. We've all experienced failures, setbacks, but brothers and sisters, because of Jesus, we know God's good hand. We see what he's doing, and the fact that we draw breath every day tells us that he is not done with us yet. This God calls us. He wants us to call others to follow him. This God desires that we would trust him. This God is excited for us to look for more of what he's doing. This God desires that we would worship him. Brothers and sisters, will you commit to look for what God is doing and then respond to him the way Ezra and the Israelites respond? Now, maybe you're here or maybe you're watching online and you don't even know this God to respond to him. This God who was with these people, the Israelites, who saved them, who delivered them, he offers salvation and deliverance to you as well. He offers that through his son, Jesus Christ. We don't have to offer sacrifices as worship to him. Because of Christ, we have been restored to God. He lived the perfect life, fulfilled everything that we couldn't, and died to pay the penalty for our sin. And so if we turn from our rebellion against God, if we believe and trust in him, then we can know this God. We can see his good hand toward us every day. We can seek him and find him. Have you called on this God for salvation? Ezra, the Israelites, called out to him. In the New Testament, we're told that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you haven't done that or have questions about that, I pray that you'll contact me, reach out to me, so we can talk about how you can know this God who shows his good hand toward his people. And if you do know him, as the Israelites did, let's respond with worship because he alone is worthy of that worship.